This is the Lesbian Historic Motif Podcast, brought to you by Heather Rose Jones. The show looks at lesbian and sapphic themes in history and literature, and historical fiction with queer female characters, including fantastic versions of the past. We present research, interviews, news of the field, book listings, and original historical fiction for your enjoyment. For even more historic research, check out our blog, Welcome to On the Shelf for August 2022. It's getting to be that time of year to start beating the drum for next year's fiction series. Each year, I usually have a moment when I think, do I want to do this again? Is the fiction series doing well enough to keep going? Are people interested enough that it makes sense? But this year I'd already committed myself back at the beginning of the year when I agreed to commission a story for next year's series. It'll be the sixth year for the series, which feels like we've been doing it forever. Let all your author friends know that we're doing this again, and check out the show notes for a link to the call for submissions, which will have more details than you ever wanted to know about what we're looking for and how and when to submit it. And speaking of audio fiction, I'm really excited about the release of the audiobook for my first novel, Daughter of Mystery, this week. It should be available from all the usual audiobook sites. I'm looking forward to hearing what the narrator did with it. And if sales are good, we should get the other Alpenia books out in audio eventually. I know that I've been getting much more into audiobooks lately, and I hear a lot of people saying something similar. So here's hoping that this will open up a new audience for the Alpenia books. If you're a fan of queer podcasts in general, I'd like to direct your attention to a website that I recently learned about. Queerpodcasts.net is an aggregator of information about, well, what it says on the label. You can use it to search for new shows to check out and filter by topic or representation. And if you don't have a preferred podcast delivery system, you can use it as a place to subscribe to your chosen feeds. It's a relatively new site and is looking into adding more features. So if you have suggestions about features you'd find useful or shows they haven't included yet, I'm sure they'd love to hear from you. And speaking of shows I hadn't heard about, QueeredPodcasts.net tipped me off to the existence of another lesbian history show that I'd somehow missed previously. It's called Vintage Lesbians and mostly focuses on biographies of historic figures. Alas, the show appears to be on hiatus currently. I had no luck trying to contact them to see if there was an update. But all the previous episodes are still available through your favorite podcatcher. Check out the show notes for links to both these resources. In July, the Lesbian Historic Motif Project blog read through Terry Castle's The Apparitional Lesbian. This work, written in 1993, and especially the title essay, still gets cited regularly when discussing how lesbian identity gets disappeared or displaced into the realm of unreality in popular culture. It's an interesting theme that appears in various forms across the centuries. Castle asserts that lesbians always exist in some other place at some other time or in some entirely fictional space and never right here and now. Does that conclusion stand the test of evidence? Check it out and decide for yourself. For August, I'm lining up some articles from the collection The Single Life in the Roman and Later Roman World, edited by Sabine R. Hubner and Christian Lace. 
Some of the material in this collection helped inspire Ursula Witcher's story, The Spirits of Cabasis, which we aired back in April. In fact, it was her reference to the book that led me to pick it up, and it joins the other books and articles on the theme of single women and how their lives can provide inspiration for sapphic stories. I haven't done any recent book shopping for the blog, alas. I mean, not that it's an enormous tragedy, given how many titles are on my to-do list, but it's always fun to talk about new discoveries. Fortunately, there's never a lack of new fiction to talk about every month. Let's start with a couple of July books. The Valkyrie's Daughter by Tiana Warner from Entangled Teen follows the usual trend for stories with an early Norse setting in having strong fantasy elements. It's probably a bit questionable to consider it a historic story, but the dearth of more historic Norse settings makes it hard to know where to draw the line. For as long as Sigrid could remember, she's wanted to become a mighty, fearless Valkyrie. But without a winged mare, she's a mere stable hand, left wondering who her parents were and why she's so different. So when the eye shows her a vision where she's leading a Valkyrie charge on the legendary eight-legged horse Sleipner, she grabs the possibility of this greater destiny with both hands and refusing to let go. Too bad that the only one who can help her get there is Mariam, an enemy Valkyrie who begrudgingly agrees to lead her to Helheim, but who certainly can't be trusted even if she does make Sigrid more than a little flustered. As they cross the Nine Worlds, battling night elves, riding sea serpents, and hurtling into fire to learn the truth about Sigrid's birthright, an unexpected but powerful bond forms. As her feelings for Mariam deepen into something fiery and undeniable, fate has other plans for Sigrid. What happens when the one thing you think you were meant to do might end the Nine Worlds? Lex Croucher's Infamous from Zaffrey Books looks like it follows the path of her previous novel, Reputation, in blending modern rom-com sensibilities with a Regency setting. 22-year-old aspiring writer Edith Eddie Miller and her best friend Rose have always done everything together. Climbing trees, throwing grapes at boys, sneaking bottles of wine, practicing kissing... But following their debutante ball, Rose is suddenly talking about marriage, and Eddie is horrified. When Eddie meets charming, renowned poet Nash Nicholson, he invites her to his crumbling Gothic estate in the countryside. The entourage of eccentric artists indulging in pure hedonism is exactly what Eddie needs to, in order to forget Rose and finish her novel. But Eddie might discover the world of famous literary icons isn't all poems and pleasure. When I was mining the forthcoming book listings at the Reads Rainbow website for August Books, and, by the way, I highly recommend Reads Rainbow for hearing about queer books, I ran across a new-to-me author writing solidly grounded medieval stories. Reads Rainbow indicates that Corley Mooney's My Lady's Shadow from Sapphire Books has a sapphic main character, but, as is often the case, there's no clue to that in the cover copy. 1198, France. Lady Maria of Turenne has long been engaged in a flirtation with Count Hugh de la Marche. It is a match which her father has strongly encouraged. However, Maria is her own woman, and she is determined to choose for herself. Maria is unaware that her clever, scheming maid, Marisa, is secretly in love with the Count. Soon after, the young troubadour, Guy de Issel, arrives at the castle, and Maria is instantly captivated by him. He shares her distaste of convention and her love of the arts, and they soon become inseparable. 
Meanwhile, Marisa develops a strong dislike for Guy, and her resentment for Maria grows. Angered by her treatment of the Count of La Marche, Maria's father has arranged a new wedding match. This time, Maria will not be allowed to decline. Forced into marrying a wealthy Viscount against her will, Maria and Guy are torn apart from each other. However, Maria is determined to find a way to use the power she has gained through marriage to raise Guy in society. Will Maria and Guy find a way to be together? Can Maria escape her marriage? Or will they be fated to remain apart? As I say, uh, no clue what the sapphic content might be. I might have skipped including this book on the principle that if the publisher is that determined to hide any hint of queerness, who am I to argue? But researching the question turned up a duology by the same author published earlier this year where a sapphic relationship is more clearly indicated. Since I didn't find these two when they were originally released, but it wasn't too long ago, I'll go ahead and include them now. The first in the two-book series is The Lady's Keeper. 1168, France. At Eleanor of Aquitaine's palace in Poitiers, 14-year-old Lady Joanna of Agen is coming of age. Her aunt and guardian, Alice, rescued Joanna from her brutal father by bringing her to court. But now Alice fears Joanna could once again be at risk from the men around her. When Queen Eleanor's son, Henry, arrives at court, Joanna quickly catches his eye. But Alice overhears the lewd conversations of the male courtiers and worries that Joanna's honor is at stake. And as the relationship between Queen Eleanor and King Henry II of England becomes fractious, a dark mood settles over the court. Drawn into a world of intrigue, danger, and adventure, Alice must fight to keep her and Joanna safe. Will Joanna find a love match? Can Alice secure her place at court? Or will they fall victim to the dangers of court life? The sapphic reference shows up for the second book, The Cloistered Lady. Both of these are also from separate books. 1173, France. Eleanor of Aquitaine has been arrested for rebelling against her husband, King Henry II of England. Her loyal ladies-in-waiting, Alice and Joanna of Agen, have fled to the nunnery of Fontevrat, where they are anxiously awaiting news of their queen. Alice and Joanna struggle to adapt to their cramped new home at the abbey. Each is secretly nursing a broken heart and harboring unholy desires. Joanna left behind a lover, Jeanne, at Eleanor's court in Poitiers, and Alice has long been in love with the queen's daughter, Marie. And as the days stretch on with no news, they both begin to fear the worst. What has happened to Eleanor? Will Alice and Joanna be forced to remain at the abbey indefinitely? And will they ever be reunited with the ones they love? We have an unusually large proportion of books with medieval settings this month. The next item is Set in Stone by Stella Brinzianu from Legend Press. In medieval Moldova, two women from opposing backgrounds fall in love. But this is a world where a woman's role is defined by religion and class. To make a life together means defying their families, the law, and the church. The closer they become, and the more they refuse the roles assigned to them, the more sacrifices they have to make. While Mira's rebellion puts her life in the gravest danger, Elena must fight to change her legal status to son so she can inherit her father's land and change their destiny. Set in Stone delves into the past to uncover a story which is just as relevant today, the desire to forge your own path while constantly having to resist a patriarchal fear of women's strength, and how ultimately love can help you choose your own truth. If you're a reader who prefers your sapphic romance free of complications involving male characters, 
You may want to be aware that Mademoiselle Revolution by Zoe Civic from Berkeley Books involves a romantic threesome that includes a man. But the setting and central character sound intriguing enough to potentially balance that. Sylvie de Rosiers, as the daughter of a rich planter and an enslaved woman, enjoys the comforts of a lady in 1791 Saint-Domique society. But while she was born to privilege, she was never fully accepted by island elites. After a violent rebellion begins the Haitian Revolution, Sylvie and her brother leave their family and old lives behind to flee unwittingly into another uprising in austere and radical Paris. Sylvie quickly becomes enamored with the aims of the revolution, as well as with the revolutionaries themselves, most notably Maximilien Robespierre and his mistress Cornelie Duplay. As a rising leader and abolitionist, Robespierre sees an opportunity to exploit Sylvie's race and abandonment of her aristocratic roots as an example of his ideals, while the strong-willed Cornelie offers Sylvie safe harbor and guidance in free thought. Sylvie battles with her past complicity in a slave society and her future within this new world order as she finds herself increasingly torn between Robespierre's ideology and Cornelie's love. When the reign of terror descends, Sylvie must decide whether to become an accomplice while a new empire rises on the bones of innocence, or risk losing her head. Jane Walsh continues her focus on Regency romances with the start of a new series, The Inconvenient Heiress, The Spinsters of Inverley, number one, from Bold Strokes Books. In the quiet seaside town of Inverley, nothing exciting ever happens to gently bred spinsters like Miss Arabella Seaton. Content with her watercolor paintings and her cats, she is confident that no one suspects her forbidden and unrequited passion for her best friend, Caroline. The eldest in a family of six children, Miss Caroline Reeve, has the unenviable task of shepherding her siblings into adulthood with little coin and even less patience. The only benefit to being an eternal chaperone is that no one ever expects her to marry. When the Reeve family inherits an unexpected fortune, Caroline must take her rightful place in high society. Fortune hunters abound, and it is up to Arabella to save her from their snares and convince her that love has been in front of her all along. Can the heiress and the spinster discover an unconventional love outside of the marriage mart? Ashthorne by April Yates from Ghost Orchid Press feels like it has a bit of a gothic horror vibe with a romance overlay. In the aftermath of World War I, Adelaide Frost is on the run from a family who do not understand her. Hoping to do some good, she signs up to become a nurse at Ashthorne, a manor house newly designated as a convalescence home for injured soldiers. She quickly falls in love with the owner's daughter, Evelyn who hides a warm heart beneath a chilly exterior. But Evelyn has her suspicions about what's really happening at the hospital, and as Adelaide helps her investigate, it soon becomes apparent that there are more inhabitants residing at Ashthorne than first thought. The Lady Adventurers Club by Karen Frost from Bella Books sounds like it's aimed at fans of properties like Indiana Jones or The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. A barnstormer, a Wild West trick shooter, a mathematician. When archaeologist Anna Baring announces the founding of the Lady Adventurers Club in May 1923, none of the other three members expect to ever meet again. After all, they live halfway around the world from each other. What could possibly bring them together once more? Then they each receive an unexpected letter. 
Anna has found a tomb that promises to be even grander than that of King Tutankhamun, and she wants them to come to Egypt for the opening. It's the find of the century. The tomb will make old Tut look like a pauper. But will the women of the Lady Adventurers Club get to see it? Egypt is a political powder keg. Unscrupulous criminals keep shooting at them, and weird, unnerving things seem to happen wherever they go. As the women race across Egypt, their friendship will be tested as they fall deeper into danger. They're not the only ones after a pharaoh's treasure. As long-term followers of this podcast may know, I have a special place in my heart for stories set in medieval Wales. So it may come as no surprise that I've already pre-ordered The Drowned Woods by Emily Lloyd-Jones from Little Brown Books for Young Readers. Once upon a time, the kingdoms of Wales were rife with magic and conflict, and 18-year-old Merrid, Mare, is well acquainted with both. She is the last living water diviner, and has spent years running from the prince who bound her into his service. Under the prince's orders, she located the wells of his enemies, and he poisoned them without her knowledge, causing hundreds of deaths. After discovering what he had done, Mare went to great lengths to disappear from his reach. Then Mare's old handler returns with a proposition. Use her powers to bring down the very prince that abused them both. The best way to do that is to destroy the magical well that keeps the prince's lands safe. With a motley crew of allies, including a fey-cursed young man, the Lady of Thieves, and a corgi that may or may not be a spy, Mare may finally be able to steal precious freedom and peace for herself. After all, a person with a knife is one thing but a person with a cause can topple kingdoms. The Oleander Sword, the second book in Tasha Suri's alternate India Burning Kingdoms historic fantasy series from Orbit Books, continues the story of two women whose lives and hearts are entwined even as their fates pull them apart. I loved, loved, loved the first book in this series, which I strongly recommend reading first. The Prophecy of the Nameless God the words that declared Malini, the rightful empress of Parajatvipi, has proven a blessing and curse. She is determined to claim the throne that fate offered her. But even with the strength of the rage in her heart and the army of loyal men at her side, deposing her brother is going to be a brutal and bloody fight. The power of the deathless waters flows through Priya's blood. Thrice-born priestess, elder of Ahiranya, Priya's dream is to see her country rid of the rot that plagues it both Parajatvipa's poisonous rule and the blooming sickness that is slowly spreading through all living things. But she doesn't yet understand the truth of the magic she carries. Their chosen paths once pulled them apart, but Malini and Priya's souls remain as entwined as their destinies, and they soon realize that coming together is the only way to save their kingdom from those who would rather see it burn, even if it will cost them. So, what have I been reading or otherwise consuming? I do my best to keep a log as I go, which definitely helps to jog my memory, both for this podcast segment and when I go back to do reviews, which I am very seriously behind on. But sometimes I'm startled when I look at the log and wonder if I've been forgetting to enter things, and then realize that I've had a month go by without finishing much of anything. The only titles in the completed list this month include the third book in Catherine Addison's Goblin Emperor series, titled The Grief of Stones. The series is evolving into something like a fantasy police procedural. There's solid queer representation, though it's not sapphic. But if fantasy police procedural involving a main character who listens to the dead sounds intriguing, you might want to check out this series. 
The first book, The Goblin Emperor, centers on an entirely different character and plot, but provides the setup and background for the later books. The other item I finished this month was the audiobook of Alyssa Cole's An Extraordinary Union, the first in a historic romance series set during the American Civil War and featuring black protagonists. I'm developing the realization that Cole is rather hit or miss for me. Too often her romances seem to depend too strongly on an immediate, non-rational sexual chemistry between the characters. And that just doesn't work very well for me. I love the topics and characters she tackles, but I'm not the right reader for the ones that depend so strongly on insta-lust. And to finish up this month, we have an interview with author Rebecca Framau about her story, A Farce to Suit the New Girl, which we aired in the last episode. Today we're chatting with Rebecca Framau, whose story, A Farce to Suit the New Girl, aired in last week's show. So one of the reasons I loved your story is because it's full of complicated characters and motivations, and the setting is a hard, dangerous time. Well, I mean, how much of European history was not a hard, dangerous time for Jewish communities? Uh, but that doesn't mean that everything in the story is dreary. Uh, so why don't you tell us a little bit about how this story came to be? Sure. I've been really fascinated by the world of the Yiddish theater for a couple of years now. It's kind of a uniquely interesting theatrical like period because we know exactly when theater started happening in Yiddish and the sort of flowering of it happened over the course of a really short time. It's like 40 or 50 years was when this, this genre, not genre, but like this whole medium came to be and like really blossomed and expanded and exploded all over the world uh, and then sort of started to fade away again a little bit, although of course it's still being revived here and there in various places. So I happened to pick up a book about it a couple of years ago and I read through it cover to cover and then I started looking for every other source that I could find about it because it was really fascinating to me how all of a sudden this medium for expression, for play and for theatricality opened up that hadn't existed before in this Eastern European Jewish context. And so, you know, one of the things that I think is really fun is that like, all of a sudden, all of these people who had been joining, you know, becoming cantors uh, and becoming like religious singers and things like that, as soon as the Yiddish theater appeared, like tons of them just left and were like, no, this is what I wanted to do. Like this, I hadn't realized this was a thing that I could do. And now it's suddenly become possible. Absolutely, I want to do this. And it exploded as like, as soon as people, like the idea appeared in people's minds. So it's this very cool period of Yiddish history and Jewish history. That's also happening at the same time, of course, as immense specific turmoil and conflict. As political conflict happens in Russia and in the Pale of Settlement in Eastern Europe, and Jewish people are, obviously a lot of people, Jewish people are becoming part of that, and are also, anytime Jewish people are part of that, are becoming disproportionately blamed for it. So this story is actually set only a year or two before Yiddish theater itself is banned in Russia and in the Russian territory for a period of several years. And that's how we get Yiddish theater in, you know, in London, in New York, in South America, all over the place, because all of these Yiddish theater companies who had only been around at that point for a couple of years, suddenly had to pick up and move because the theater had been banned because of a crackdown related to this assassination that happened because there was a Jewish woman involved in it, just one out of, you know, a number of conspirators, but that was enough to trigger a number of pogroms and crackdowns on Jewish life. So I was really interested in this particular moment in history before that happened, when you have these two 
very different kind of expansions of Jewish life beyond the sort of traditional shtetl experience. People growing up and finding different ways to be Jewish and to express that or not as they chose. And I wanted to write a story about those coming into collision with each other in a smaller and more quiet way before the big ways in which they would, they would impact each other in a couple of years. Uh-huh. And, and you, you brought in the themes of, you know, revolution and political action as, as a, one of the motivations in there. And I realized, so you have written a number of short works uh, with Jewish themes. And when I was reading over the bio you sent, I suddenly realized, oh my God, you wrote those stories on Podcastle that I loved. Yes. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. I'm so glad you liked them. And I, I suspect my podcast audience would also enjoy that series of stories. So why don't you st- introduce that a little bit? And I'll put links to them in, in the show notes. Right now, it's a series of three stories. Uh, the first was actually published first in Diabolical Plots uh, and then republished in Podcastle. And Podcastle has published a subsequent two. The first is Further Arguments in Support of Yuta Cohen's Proposal to Bluma Zilberman. The second called Shana Rubin Keeps Her Head Under Circumstances That Nobody Could Have Expected. And the third, which just came out last year, is Gidel Schneiderman Learns to Live with Her In-Laws. And I actually do, although this story doesn't actually have any characters in specific in line with the characters in those stories, there are, you know, it's all part of a broader continuity in my head, so maybe they'll be linked up someday. But those stories are a little bit more fantastical. Uh, they pick up on some more mythological elements of both the Jewish mythology and fairy, you know, fables and fairy tales and those that don't necessarily come explicitly out of Jewish tales. And they and they all center around queer characters. And they all center around queer characters. The central figure in the first one is a trans rabbi named Yuta Cohen. And after I wrote that kind of first piece, I started building out his friends and circle and family and expanding the world a little bit just to kind of uh, see where, try and fit queer characters into the context that, you know, maybe a lot of us have become familiar with out of, you know, old traditional standards like Fiddler on the Roof and so forth, and play around with that a little. And one of my most valuable sources for that, which I expect some readers of this podcast might be familiar with already, but I can't recommend highly enough, the book A Rainbow Thread, an anthology of queer Jewish texts from the first century to 1969 by Noam Siena. Yes, and I, I have uh, blogged that on the, the website, so I will put a link to uh, my summary of it. Although what I found was it, it had very little material specifically on, on lesbian-like women. So Yes, it's true. Interesting because there's very little documentation of, especially for this period, the Ashkenazi Pale of Settlement, 17th, 18th, 19th century Eastern European context about you know the ways in which queer life was lived. Not a lot of that material survives. A lot of the sources are either earlier or later. It's really good about 20th century material. It's really good about from at looking at early biblical texts and the way they might express the queer experience and looking at some of the you know Ottoman Empire stuff where the queer experience was a little bit more culturally able to flourish. Mm-hmm. Um, but explicit documentation of how people were living clear, queer lives in the time period that, you know, that this story is set in and a little bit later is a little bit sparse. So it does require some imagining, but that does also mean that it's fun to imagine and kind of figure out where that fits. Uh-huh. Um, and that's one of the reasons that I'm 
you know, I found it really fun to play in the space of the Yiddish theater because that's one space where we do know that there was at the very least a lot of play with gender, a lot of play with sexuality, just in the ways that it got represented on stage. Mm -hmm. um, I also have to give a shout out to the first, the original play, which deals with lesbian, one of the, the very few explicitly queer plays from the Yiddish theater context, which is Sholomash's God of Vengeance, which deals with a it's about a young woman who, well, it's about a man who keeps a brothel underneath his house and runs that and has a young daughter that he attempts to keep completely free of it. And then the daughter and one of the prostitutes from the below fall in love. And recently there was a great play from a couple of years ago called Indecent that dealt with the various stagings of Sholomash's original God of Vengeance both on the Yiddish stage and when it was translated into English on the English stage and sort of reimagined queer women playing the roles of these queer women on stage and what it might've meant to them. And definitely seeing that play, which I think is available in a filmed version from on PBS was also a big part of the inspiration for starting to write these stories. Well, I, I definitely will have a lot of links here for people to follow up if they're interested. So any um, future writing projects that you can tell us about? Well, I'll have another short story coming out this year. I think it will actually already be out at the time that this airs uh, in Kaleidotrope, which is about less explicitly queer. It's about sort of coming to looking at the person that you used to be and not necessarily liking them very much and the potential consequences of that encounter uh, and also about robot nuns. Okay. And I hope to have more short stories kind of set in this context more about Yuta Cohen and his family and friends and other people that he may have encountered and potentially more about this particular theater troupe and about you know what might happen in the future to Havalea and to Greta who are the protagonists of this story may uh, I hope to have more more in that vein in the future. Keep in mind that uh, that we we publish historic fantasy as well as strictly historical stories so you know just keep that in mind. So if people wanted to follow you on social media, uh, what's a good place? You can find me on Twitter at Rifka, which is R-Y-F-K-A-H. And I also have a website, RebeccaFramau.com, which has a list of all the other stuff I've published and links to find my other short stories. And that's probably the best places to find me right now. Okay. Well, thank you for joining us on the show. Thank you so much for having me and letting me babble on a bit about the Yiddish theater. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast. See the show notes for links to people and topics. Most shows will have a transcript linked as well. If you have a book announcement, a topic suggestion, or might like to appear on the show, please drop me an email. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it and subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and consider supporting our Patreon 